You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Good morning. Morning. It's really good to see everyone today. Our service this morning is going to be a little bit different than usual, uh, more interactive, more time to reflect together on what God's done, is doing, and will do. And I'd like to start our time uh, by us getting into groups of two or three, not, not just yet, but in a moment, I'll have you get together with one or two others, and we'll discuss this question, which is on the, the front page of your insert in your bulletin. And the question is, what kind of world do you want to live in? So what's your ideal world? What kind of world do you want to live in? Uh, Some of us, we hear that, and the first thing we think is, I just want to live in a world where I can eat and drink whatever I want, never exercise, and look great. Amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Or maybe spending all your time with your friends, never having to worry about paying bills. That's uh, that's like maybe something we would like, the world we want. Some of you gamers, uh, who's a gamer in here? Anyone? Yeah? Okay. Uh, staying up till three in the morning online with your friends, gaming, sleeping in until noon. You get up, you make your way to in and out you drink whatever gamers drink, and then you repeat. And then you do that day after day after day, and that's called your life. These are honest answers to the question, what, what kind of world do you want to live in? But below the surface of what I'd call those, those preferences, there are more substantial things that you and I long for, aren't there? Uh, What are those things? What's missing from your life or from this world that you long to see present? What's the world you want? Uh, We just sang about feasting in the house of Zion, where we are not consumed by the flood. We're upheld, protected, bound together in peace. Think along those lines as you get together with one or two others Uh, and answer the question, what kind of world do you want to live in? Let's take four minutes and you don't have to watch the clock. I'll call us back together. What kind of world do you want to live in? Go. All right. All right, all right, all right. What kind of world uh, do you want to live in? That was the question. What kind of world do you want to live in? Let's hear from some of you. You can just raise your hand or just yell it out. What kind of world do you want to live in? A world with peace, yes. Yep. A world with hope. Safety, yeah, yeah. No stress, yes. Amen, amen. Yeah, so. A world of faith, yep. Yeah, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of things are lacking right now, aren't they? Yeah. More Christians, yeah. Yeah, more people to put their faith in Christ, right? Amen, amen. So we all have preferences, right? But there are things that God has placed in the, the heart of those made in his image, which is all people, things that go deeper, things that, that sound like what you've just said. Uh, here, I put some here. The world we all want is a world where every need is met. Right? No hunger, uh, no homelessness, no depression. A world we all want is a world where hurt doesn't happen. We don't hurt others, they don't hurt us. A world where we are secure in love and so there's no need to prove ourselves, to go looking for validation from others. 
a world where wholeness, love, and rest, and peace, and truth, and goodness, and beauty, these aren't just concepts, these are realities that are abundant in our lives. So the world we all want is the world as it should be, and at the bottom of it, it's a world without sin, a world without sin. We all dream of a better world, don't we? Christians believe that God promises this better world. And the Bible is the story of what God has done and will do to keep his promise. And we've been talking about uh, story or the story a lot in this series the last couple weeks. We're all wired for a story. All people are. And God's story, we could say, is the story of all stories. When you compare the biblical story with, with other world religions and philosophies and worldviews and theologies, nothing compares to it. The the biblical story makes more sense of our human experience and our corresponding emotions than any alternative. The biblical story helps us understand why. Why? Why are people made for relationships? Because we're made in the image of a triune God, three in one. Why do people seek justice and truth? Because these are at the heart of God's character. Why do we have the capacity to appreciate beauty? Why do we grieve deeply when bad things happen? So we have science, and by the way, I think science is real. Science helps us understand what, but it doesn't answer the why questions, right? We need the word of God to tell us why, and God can be trusted when he speaks. God's word is true. And when I say God's word is true, I want you to hear that I don't mean true for you or true for me or true for those who choose to believe it, or that there's somehow a a subcategory of truth called Christian truth, and that's true for the Christians. Truth is true for all. So what God says about himself, about people, about history, about relationships, about right and wrong, about the future, about everything, it has bearing on everyone, whether they know it, believe it, accept it. If it's true, it's true. This is why, church, we need to be the people that know the truth and love it and live it and commend it to others. Not because we say so. Hey, you need to believe what I believe because I say so. No, don't say that. Or you need to believe what I believe because I believe it. No, you need to believe what is true because it's true. And because there's so much goodness to be gotten if you would receive it and so much goodness to miss out on if you don't. This great story we've been talking about, it begins in creation, Genesis 1 to 3. It ends in new creation, Revelation 21 and 22. And what happens in between those bookends, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, explains why we need a new creation. If you remember last week, we spent time in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. We, We considered our redemption And we said that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who gets us from the Garden of Eden to the city garden of New Jerusalem, right? And for the engineers, I said, what what happens in G2, it gets us from G1 to G3, right? The only engineer in the last service that I know of laughed when I said that last time. (laughs) Jesus takes us from the spoiled old creation and guarantees our inheritance in the new creation And that new creation is the focus of our time this morning. So open your Bibles uh, to Revelation 21. It's the last book in your Bible. Or you can uh, look on the back of that insert in the bulletin. It's on there as well. 
Revelation 21. So whatever we came up with in our opening discussion, our talk about the world we all want, whatever longings we named, what God has in store for us is much better. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the Bible starts with, uh, we could say the story begins with God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, right, which was in Eden, under God's rule. There was a right relationship between the creator and his creatures. And we said it was paradise until sin brought corruption and spoiled it. God's people disobey. They move out from under God's rule. And as a result, God boots them from the Garden of Eden, from his place, but he doesn't give up on them. And even in the midst of the garden, we see a glimmer of hope. He has a plan, God does, to get his people back in his place under his rule again. And all of history is working toward that goal. And John's vision, the revelation, shows us that God will succeed. There's no outline this morning. It's going to be more like a running commentary as I just babble our way through Revelation 21 and 22 and Romans 8 and some other passages. My hope is that we would all be listening to the Spirit and jot down anything that that we hear Him speaking to us. We'd respond in faith together. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So I don't think getting a new heaven and a new earth to dwell in means that God scraps and starts over like a brand new heaven and earth. I don't think that's true any more than he scraps us and starts over with us when we're in need of repair. See, what God does is he redeems God transforms, he, he, does, he repairs what he's created. When it comes to this new heaven and new earth that we read about, I, I don't think it's helpful to think of trash day, like God's gonna take out the trash and bring in something brand new. Think extreme makeover cosmic edition. That's what we wanna have in our minds. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul says, the creation will be set free from its bondage. The creation itself will be set free, unchained, from its bondage. So the creation, not destroyed and something else brand new pops up in its place, but set free. So the, the, again, the creation, the physical world we live in, heaven and earth will be renewed. It's been longing for the day when it's freed from its bondage to decay. When humanity fell, the, the physical earth fell. When humanity is fully redeemed, the physical earth will be fully redeemed. Uh, a highly theological way to say this that you can impress your friends with at Christmas is God don't make no junk. Let's say that together. God don't make no junk. And all the English teachers are just cringing, I know. 
If God completely destroyed creation, scrapped it and started over, it would seem that sin has frustrated and defeated God's original purpose in creation. But that's not the case. God will renew what sin has marred. God will take what he's already made and restore it. He's going to draw out the original beauty of what he's made and make it every bride's dream home, heaven and earth, every bride's dream home, and us all together, the bride of Christ. It's going to be heaven on earth, literally, which is what John sees when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned. There's, there's an interlocking uh, between heaven, which is God's space, and earth, which is our space. An interlocking, a, a marrying together of these two places into one new union where God's people will dwell with him in safety forever. See, throughout the book of Revelation, if we were to read from beginning to, to end, you would notice this back and forth between the heavenly scene and then the earthly scene. And the heavenly scene and the earthly scene. But after the new Jerusalem descends in 21.2, there's no more back and forth. Why? Because the better country, the heavenly homeland that the author of Hebrews talks about will have finally come. And, and the prayer that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we won't need to pray that anymore. It'll be done. And we'll sing, oh, happy day. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is God's covenant promise that's repeated over and over throughout scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. The, the word people there is actually plural. So peoples, it's pointing to the fact that this isn't just saying Israel's going to come back into their homeland and I'll be their God, but every nation, tribe, and tongue, every ethnicity, every person in different stations of life, men and women and children, rich and poor, all of those people are going to call on God as Father. I will be their people and they will be, I will be, they will be my people and I will be their God. So if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus already, you might think, well, already God is my God, and already I am one of his people, and already we are the people of God. So that's already true. So what's going on here? And I would just say, what this is describing is what we already experience, but even better, without the presence of sin. We'll see him in a way that we don't see him now. It'll be better. We'll know him in a way that we don't know him now. It'll be deeper. God will establish his permanent, unmediated dwelling among his people. His permanent, unmediated dwelling among his people. In Old Testament times, it was in tabernacle and temple, and it was this bright, shining Shekinah glory of God in the coming of Christ. God took up his dwelling temporarily among humanity when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but then he ascended to heaven. During the church age, which is where we're living right now, God indwells his people. The Bible says that we, his church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I and mean, that's incredible. 
God indwells his people. But in the consummation, in the day that John describes, Revelation 21, the promise which was fulfilled partially in the new covenant of Jesus will be fulfilled finally in the new Jerusalem. We, God's people, will actually begin to live with him, whatever that means. And whatever that means, we know it's better than what we experience now. Our faith will become sight. Do you know our faith is not yet sight? Our faith will become sight. And as Revelation 22, 4 says, we shall see his face and his name will be on our foreheads. We'll see the face of God. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's great, right? It's a mystery, and mystery is why the Apostle Paul on occasion writes things like 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even comprehend it right now, can we? What awaits us in the new creation is going to fill our hearts and blow our minds. Sometime over the holidays, I'd encourage you to, to either get two Bibles and open them or print out Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. Just have them side by side and notice what's similar about those two accounts, but especially notice the differences. I did this in, in preparation for today. And it's really amazing when you think about what doesn't make it from the first garden to the third garden, what, what Jesus weeds out of his garden. Listen to Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God will... And, and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. When we read Revelation 21 and 22 and we compare the, the garden city with the garden of Eden from Genesis will notice what's missing. What doesn't make it on the journey from Eden to New Jerusalem? Uh, first of all, I mean, I don't even know if I need to point this out. That serpent is gone. Amen. I, I, I don't know. What, what's the strongest way without cursing we can say that serpent, that slithery jerk, that, that slimy bad person, what, that slithery jerk, he's not there. That's number one, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also not there. It didn't make it to the, the new creation, new Jerusalem. And I don't know if you caught this. It, it, I didn't the first few times I read it. There's more than one tree of life in the new creation. Did you notice that? Listen again to Revelation 22. Uh, verse one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
So it's this garden, but it's got this river flowing through this. It's a garden city. Also on either side or both sides of the river, the tree of life. On both sides, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the, the, the serpent's gone, but so is the tempting tree. And the tree of life, it would seem, has multiplied. And I don't know if it's just one on each here, if we're supposed to see a, a forest of life now in this new creation. But in any event, it's better. And unlike that other tree, the fruit from this tree is meant to be eaten. And the leaves on this tree are for the healing of the nations. All things are new. All things are new. Those which threaten have been removed. The temptation is gone. The tempter is gone. Since sin entered the world, the curse has dominated, right? Death has reigned. We talk about that we still live in a fallen world, but in God's new world, all that is gone, all that temptation. And with all that is gone, every cause for weeping is gone too. If Revelation 21.4 isn't one of your favorite verses in the whole Bible, I would, I would commend it to you. This is such a great verse. Listen to this. When God fully... Uh, comes to dwell with his people, finally, the first thing we hear about is that he'll wipe away our tears. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Can you even get your mind? Is that too good to be true? this day that's coming. Think of all the pain and sorrow associated with life, with your life, or in our, in our world. All the letdowns, all the hurtful things that have ever been said or done to you or by you, the messy divorces, war, homelessness, child abuse, all the words you wish you could take back, the loss of a spouse or a child, or a parent, or a friend. So much to cause us to cry. You, you uh, should have been given a pencil on the way in, and if you don't have that, there should be a pen on the seat in front of you. What I want to do for uh, just a, a few minutes here is to write down in the space on the bulletin uh, what brings tears to your eyes. So I don't think you need to think about it too much. Just think about what makes you cry and then just take a few minutes to, to list some of those things. Okay, go. back to Psalm 126, that all of the things that we would write down or weep about, the Lord at one point is going to turn all of that weeping into songs of joy. That's what it says in Psalm 126. We will feast in the house of Zion. 
we will sing with our hearts restored he has done great things we will say together we will feast and weep no more let's sing it again we will feast we will feast in the house of Zion we will sing with our hearts restored he is done say together we will feast and weep no more well the reality of the way things are ought to make us long for something different right for something better And that something better is exactly what God has in store for us. A day is coming when there will be no more mourning and no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Can you believe it? Does it sound too good to be true? It it does, doesn't it? It sounds too good to be true. And God knows that it sounds too good to be true. He knows that's how it hits our ears. He knows our cynicism. He knows how hopelessness can crush our spirits. Which is why he, I think he speaks for himself, starting in verse 5. He, he, he says, behold, I am making all things new. He himself is personally involved in this. I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, John, the revelator, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. New creation is coming. How can we be confident? Because we get a glimpse of it in the life and ministry of Jesus. In him, we see someone living the life that we were intended to live perfectly. Also, we can be confident because we get the guarantee of this new creation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What's old and dying will give way to the new. New creation is not yet here, but friends, because of Jesus, it is coming. Do you believe that? Yeah, it is coming because he is worthy. Let's stand up together and sing to this great God of ours.